On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest coronavirus news, recent OSHA fines for N95 masking, and in our focus segment, Darren Smith of SIS joins the ASC Podcast to discuss how COVID-19 affected ASC operations and motivated surgery centers to invest in and consider new solutions and software that can help them tackle the challenges of today and capitalize on the opportunities of tomorrow. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 137 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for August 16th, 2021. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York, this is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. John is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So it's been a while since you've heard from us out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were on vacation for a while, and of course, we've been uh, busy with various conferences. We just finished the uh, Infection Control Conference a couple of weeks ago, and we're going into the ASC Administrators Boot Camp, which is this week. This recording will probably come out uh, after the first day of that conference, so... Uh, We're very excited about all the conferences we've been doing and the the great feedback we've been getting from it. Also, uh, Sue and I are recording... I keep saying that from our new studios, but it, it's just... We have it's, upgraded yet again. We have upgraded yet again. This is uh, ASCP Studios version 3.0. Um, so now we have new lighting, which is kind of annoying, So We're looking at the monitor up there, and it's right mm-hmm. in the way of the light. So it's, yeah. it, we're, we're actually doing... Uh, we're testing all the equipment out before tomorrow's conference. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually doing video, which we normally don't do. We won't post it for anybody, but yeah. uh, it is kind of interesting to get used to this new equipment. But uh, thanks to all of the patrons members who have helped to uh, finance the uh, massive infusion of, of mm-hmm. uh, new equipment that we've had to do in order to meet the demands of our uh, studio for the conferences as well as the podcast. It does seem like we're finding more and more things that we need to talk about that we yeah. between the conferences, the boot camps, and, and the podcast. So it's really... I remember way at the beginning, and I know we've mentioned this before, it's like, how could we have something to talk about <laughs> no. even once a month? And it just... You know, we just keep finding things that that we can help educate people on, and we and we get such great feedback from our patron members who join us on Saturday mornings, as well as the boot camp, and we really appreciate that. And again, anybody can give us feedback by uh, sending an email to comments at ascpodcast dot com. We take everything seriously, and uh, if you have something that you'd like to learn more about. Feel free to do that. Sue, we also haven't uh, posted an episode of the uh, staff edition in a couple mm-hmm. months, so we're going to have mm-hmm. to do that. We're struggling to keep up with, uh, you know, the demands of everything. You know, the uh, amateur healthcare strategies has uh, grown so dramatically in the last couple months. Uh, 
as we take on more and more facilities. We're bringing three new facilities on board within the next two weeks, and uh, we've expanded into New Jersey. Uh, so anybody that's in New Jersey and is looking for regulatory consulting, uh, we've hit the ground running in that state right now. So uh, we're very excited about that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already dominate. Amateur Healthcare Strategies really dominates New York State. I think about 25% of the facilities in New York are clients of ours. So, uh, But that has kept us busy, and we apologize that we haven't had much of an opportunity to uh, do these podcasts. So we'll try to pick up on that. Again, talking about the patron members, Sue, we we really enjoy our Saturday morning sessions and Mm -hmm. any patron member can uh, avail themselves of that Saturday Mm -hmm. session. We have great conversations on Saturday. Uh, So for more information about becoming a a patron, uh, visit ASCpodcast.com. But please remember, the podcast itself is always going to be free. And uh, the, the patron program just provides additional benefits and discounts. And uh, we just announced the uh, next director of nursing boot camp, which sold out in May. The next one will be November 16th through the 19th, 2021. We're calling it the director of nursing boot camp November cohort. And we are going to have another administrator's boot camp. Of course, the August uh, cohort starts uh, this week, uh, depending mm-hmm. upon when you're listening to this, yep. uh, in August. Tomorrow for us. Yeah. Tomorrow for us. The next ASC Administrators Boot Camp is going to be in January of 2022. Can you believe that, Sue? It's only four months away. I know. January of 2022. Uh, so these we're going to be doing at least four boot camps a year now because mm-hmm. of the huge demand for this. And already we have over 50 graduates of uh, the boot camps that mm-hmm. we've done so far. And by Friday, we'll have another 25, 26, mm-hmm. I think we have. And uh, we're just so proud of all the the uh, effort that these individuals have put into these uh, boot camps, and uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to produce them. And every time we do one, it seems like we come away with another idea for either yeah. a, a full boot camp or a day-long education that people, you know, need a little more in-depth on. So, yeah, and keeps growing. And from the administrator's boot camp, or, well, both from the administrator's boot camp in January and mm-hmm. the director of nursing boot camp in May, we got a lot of feedback about the walkthrough. There's a section of both of those boot camps where we walk through the conditions for coverage. And we do it in four hours. And it seems like a lot of time. But when we get into it, we're always really rushed for time. Yeah, And they're so important. They are. So we have decided, and again, with feedback from our patrons, that we are going to, in December, have a uh, a full day walk through the conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines. So uh, I'll be announcing that very shortly as soon as I can get the uh, graphics and the uh, the advertising all together for that. So uh, again, if you're an amateur healthcare strategies client, you get, always get those types of conferences for free. And if you uh, uh, are not, of course, uh, we'll make it available at a very reasonable price. So keep, uh, we got so many things going on. You, you need to visit ASCpodcast.com <laughs> frequently. And of course, listen to the podcast here. You know, Stu, I've been out and, and talking to a lot of clients lately and it you know, I, I'm constantly saying, hey, did you listen to the last last podcast? Because, and what I realize is that people are so uh, strained for time right now mm-hmm. that, you know, oh, they're yeah. lucky if they get to listen to the podcast, you know, within a, two weeks afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we do know that. And uh, we'll try to be a, a little more timely about getting them out, even if they're shorter, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what ends up happening is when we wait a month, we end up with a very long podcast. And yes. I know that's frustrating trying to to, uh, to listen to that. So we have a lot of news. We're going to break the news up in the next couple episodes, and the, but we'll, we'll talk today about the most pertinent stuff. So Sue, why don't you uh, kind of introduce a couple topics? From OR managers, 
August 11th, 2021 edition, a study was conducted by researchers at the University of Birmingham in England that indicated the patients who had isolated pre-surgery to avoid COVID actually had an increased risk of post-operative pulmonary complications. Now, of course, you know, not getting COVID is the most important thing. Um, but they, I just found this interesting. They said, after adjusting for age comorbidities, and, the, and this part I'm quoting right from the article, um, and type of surgery, patients who isolated preoperatively had a 20% higher risk of postoperative lung complications than those who didn't isolate. The risk rose if patients isolated for more than three days. Isolation from four to seven days was associated with an, a 25% increased risk, and isolation for eight days or longer with a 31% increased risk. So, Sue, my question is, this seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That, you know, don't you want to uh, have people isolate before the procedure? Why, why is this uh, proven mm -hmm. to be uh, not great? Yeah, it seems seems strange, especially for me because it was such a short amount of time. But um, what they found is that it's associated, if you're isolating, you're probably decreasing your physical activity. Oh. You may be eating worse, you know, you're just sitting home munching all day. Um, higher levels of anxiety and depression. And so this can result in um, contributing to an increased risk of these pulmonary complications. Now, I think, you know, obviously you still want people to isolate, but yeah. um, the takeaway, you know, maybe the doctors or whoever's getting the, the patients ready can just kind of remind them, you know, walk around your house. Yeah. Maybe you're not isolating, but also even on a bigger scale, this is kind of what all of us are doing right now, yeah. just on Good a grand point. scale. So, you know, it, it you think of how... This must be affecting everybody's health because this is kind of this. I mean, they talk about four to seven days. Yeah. How about a year? You know? Well, it was a long walk for us from the uh, kitchen down here in order to do this recording. <laughs> I don't think, I guess the only good news about it is that we had to go to up and down the stairs yes. to do it. But uh, you're right, is that we're not yeah. getting into a car or we're, we're not going somewhere. We're not walking into the place. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I mean, you're doing that once. So you're not getting that exercise. This does make yeah. sense. But even for, you know, you and your family, like my mom is going to look into having her second knee surgery done. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you have to remind her, hey, walk around your house. Maybe you're not getting out, but try to still do the things you, you would have been right. doing. Don't don't lose that strength. Um, and there was some OSHA news, and I know John, you're always talking about this, yeah. these OSHA fines. Um, so a Lakewood, New Jersey medical facility and a temporary staffing agency were fined by OSHA for failure to ensure the safety and health of nurses who were giving flu shots and testing patients for coronavirus. The investigation was triggered by a complaint um, and found that the company required workers to wear respirators but did not do the required medical evaluation or fit testing. So OSHA cited the facility for two willful violations and proposed um, a fine over $270,000. The temporary staffing agency was cited for two violations, and they proposed a fine of over $13,000 for them. The employers have 15 days to respond or contest the findings. So you can find more information on the requirements by going to OSHA.gov backslash coronavirus backslash ETS. So, you know, you've said that they're high fines, and yeah. that really was. And it would be, you know, I'm sure they probably had good intentions getting them uh, N95, but they didn't do that fit testing. They like didn't follow the rules. And not, you know, the fit testing, the respiratory protection program, yeah. and... Um, and I, and if I remember right, then a big issue that came out of this too was that they didn't do the medical evaluation. Yes. And what they they actually said, what OSHA actually said, is that they endangered the life of the patients 
or the employees in this case, by not properly mm-hmm. evaluating uh, what risk they would have by wearing those respirators long term. Yeah, and it so, was a complaint. So really, anybody who feels that they're not being kept safe, and a lot of people right now are a little disgruntled. Yeah, just because of all that's going on in the world. So you really have to protect yourself and protect your your employees. I'm not aware yet that an ASC has yet been um, surveyed or tagged mm-hmm. or uh, fined. Uh, we'll keep a very close eye on that because I suspect it won't be long. And we know the hospitals have been done, doing it, but this was the first time we had something that came, that we saw evidence of something that came close to what we're doing mm-hmm. and very specifically about N95 yes. masks. And, and one thing that I have found is uh, I have talked to people uh, you know, we've been enforcing it on our clients, you know, from the very beginning. Um, uh, but, you know, when I do surveys and when we're you know, talking to potential new clients or uh, when we're just talking to, you know, members of various associations that uh, unfortunately this failure to do the fit testing and the respiratory protection program is not uncommon. So I think we have to be very careful. If you haven't done it yet, yes, you're going to be in trouble, um, but you're going to be a lot more trouble if you don't identify the problem and fix it right away. And just remember, as Sue said, you know, this, this could happen simply because somebody complains to OSHA. And there could be a long tail on that. In other words, they might send a complaint in now and they might not come out for, you know, many months before they uh, they actually do it. So, and you might already be in a situation where employees or ex-employees have already complained to OSHA and they're just mm-hmm. waiting uh, to come out and see you when they have time to do it. So uh, just because you haven't had it happen yet doesn't mean that you're you're safe. Um, so I, again, I, I don't know how many other times we can say this or how many other ways we can say it. If you got an N95 mask, you got to follow the rules. And, uh, you know, Sue, while we're on the topic, I know we've said this many times before. If you are doing a procedure in the procedure room or mm-hmm. in the uh, surgery suite and the N95 mask is the only mask that's uh, facing the patient, that mask has to be replaced after the procedure. You could put a mask over it. And then throw that mask that you put over it out. But there are concerns on the part of AORN and some of the mask manufacturers that putting a mask over an N95 invalidates the effectiveness yeah. of that program, which means you're not following the manufacturer's mm-hmm. instructions. Yeah, so you have to check those because if that says not to, then, then yeah. you can't do that. And what's the rule again about manufacturer's instructions? We have to follow <laughs> the manufacturer's instructions. Always. Yeah. Let's talk about some recent experiences. A number of our surveys recently, we've had some very, very good surveys lately, and some of the surveyors have been – shall we say, struggling a bit to find something to uh, to at least write up. And this has not resi- resulted in a citation, but there has been consultative comments coming out about the use of the term MAC anesthesia, in other words, ma- monitored anesthesia care. So apparently the Anesthesia Association has gone on record of saying that when you're using terminology in your consent or in the operating room records or on your records, you need to be more specific about the type of anesthesia you're providing and that. MAC is a very general term that's used largely for billing purposes, and that what you really need to be including in your consent with the patient and in your records is more description of what the anesthesia is that you're using, such as uh, minimal sedation, moderate sedation, or deep sedation. So uh, we are encouraging all of our clients to start moving in that direction, be a little more descriptive in that. Uh, Again, we haven't been cited yet for this, but we have had consultative comments uh, about the use of that term. We just wanted to mention making sure that you have SDS sheets for all of your drugs in addition to any 
cleaning chemicals or other chemicals that you may have on site. A lot of people forget the the medication part of it. Yeah. And that came from our dear friend, George Scores, who is a pharmacy consultant in uh, New York State. I think he's also in New Jersey. But he uh, he pointed this out to us. And uh, so we're continuing to monitor that with our clients. Uh, so we thought that would be a good thing to kind of mention here is that your SDS sheets uh, need to be comprehensive. And I'm assuming everybody knows what an SDS sheet is, sheet is but it's uh, a safety data sheet that applies to any uh, chemicals or mm-hmm. uh, you know products that might uh, prove harmful to individuals. So it certainly drugs falls into that category. And they can change over time. But if you've had a certain medication you've been using forever, um, you know, recheck the manufacturer's uh, website and make sure you've got the most current. So, unfortunately, we do have to talk about COVID. I know for a very long time, that's all we talked about. Then we've been trying to get a little bit away from it, but there are some actions going on right now that we kind of have to mention again. Uh, Many states are starting to crack down on vaccine or at least implement some form of vaccine mandate. Following in the footsteps of what's happening in California, California is requiring it for uh, all healthcare workers either to be vaccinated or if not vaccinated, they have to uh, be tested at least weekly. Um, We are closely monitoring, as we go to press today, New York New Jersey and Pennsylvania announced mandates also. Unfortunately, um, there's no details yet. Mm-hmm. The regulations themselves were not posted as of uh, the time that we uh, went to press yeah, here. We're hoping and assuming that it'll that they'll require that you just can be tested weekly if you don't get vaccinated. Right. I mean, we kind of like have California. a feeling that we'd, yeah. we'd be happy if everybody was vaccinated, but where it is a personal choice and where we really don't want to lose any employees. Yeah. Right no, now. we can't so afford to lose centers. any more employees yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, so we're hoping there's a little leeway maybe. So as we go to press, we're not even sure that it affects ambulatory surgery centers mm-hmm. specifically in those, and, and I'm talking about the three states that we've been monitoring today, uh, but do keep a very close eye on what's going on in your state. Uh, mm-hmm. Keep on top of the, um, um, the latest news. Yep. And we have noticed some... States are beginning to um, postpone elective surgeries again. Now, I didn't put down particular states because it may be one hospital in a certain state, a couple hospitals. You know, it's just kind of hit and miss right now. But, it, you know, depending on how things go, obviously, we could be in that position again. Yeah, sad. It's very sad that we're back there. Okay, well, let's take a short break, and we'll come back. And uh, in our uh, focus segment, we're uh, we're going to uh, spend some time with our dear friend uh, Darren Smith from SIS and talk about some uh, technological things that have occurred. And actually, Sue, it ended up being I, unfortunately you couldn't join me for the interview, but it ended up being a very positive interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of nice to talk about that, that not everything that came out of the pandemic was negative. I mean, I think we've preferred to learn these things a different way, um, but uh, but certainly some of the changes that occurred and what we talk about in this interview with Darren uh, were very exciting, I think, for the industry. So Mm -hmm. let's take a short break and we'll be right back. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, 
Claim Preparation and Submission, Claim Management, Accounts Receivable Management, Billing Follow-up, Month-End Reconciling and Closing Processes, Standard and Customized Reporting, and Patient Portion Due and or Balance Management. By doing the heavy lifting, CIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the CIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from CIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit CISFIRST.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at CIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's CISFIRST.com to learn more about CIS Revenue Cycle Services. So I'm here with Darren Smith with uh, Surgical Information Systems. Darren, it's always a pleasure to have you with us on the uh, the podcast. Today we're going to talk about a fascinating topic, kind of uh, how things have changed as a result of uh, the COVID-19 uh, um, event, shall we say. And you uh, want to speak a little bit about the kind of the technology side of it, what happened on the technology side, which, I mean, we know as a nation, uh, suddenly uh, Zoom is, uh, is a new word out there, kind of like Kleenex, you know, it's like the... <laughs> Right, it's a noun and a verb now. That's right, exactly. Yeah. And and of course, uh, even though our audience doesn't know this, that's exactly what we're using to communicate mm -hmm. with you. You know, even before this, we were using these like convoluted systems to connect with our guests on this show, uh, including you know cell phones, and it was all uh, very complicated. And today, it's just log on to a Zoom session. I sent you a link, you know, about an hour ago, and here we are mm -hmm. all together uh, with uh, the latest technology. So. So why don't you just start off by uh, kind of giving an overview of how things have impacted the technology side. Sure. So as everybody knows, business has changed in the last year and a half. And uh, from the technology side, what we are seeing is this is kind of the boost some people needed. Uh, mm -hmm. This was the precipitating event that they needed to start looking at. How can I operate more efficiently? How can I communicate with, with physicians and, and staff members and patients? Uh, and, and how can I do this from a remote location? Right. So how can my scheduler efficiently sit at home and schedule cases? So I, you know, as as bad as all of the lockdowns and and all of the COVID restrictions that we had, it really forced people to look at their operations and see how technology could solve some of those problems they're having. Absolutely, I, I mean, we've seen a, a huge shift in where people are working as part of the workforce. Uh, we just, as we're speaking today, we had a situation, you know, here we are recording this in August, August of 2021. And uh, we had a situation yesterday where uh, in one of our centers, one of our staff people were there. And while they were there, one of the uh, employees in the business office 
noticed she, she had symptoms of COVID, did a rapid test, was positive. Unfortunately, the business office was not socially distancing nor wearing masks. So now the entire business office has been sent home, basically, and they're all going to go through mm-hmm. rapid testing. And I mean, it really brings into question why, <laughs> you know, we brought them back because we thought it was going to be more efficient, but now we got 10 days uh, without them in the office. And I, I'm certain the question is going to come up, should we just keep them at home in, in the future? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is no ongoing problem, or maybe they only have to come in once a week. And your technology, I mean, we're not sp- talking specifically about SIS here, but but the technology of all those systems that are in the uh, in the back office now has to adapt to that. So how do you think, I mean, I'm always quite curious as to whatever other people's observations are. Do you think this is permanent? Do you think that we are going to be changing, seeing people really uh, saying that in the future, there are going to be a lot of functions such as scheduling, such as billing, uh, such as coding, you know, that can be done remotely? We are seeing that, and and we're seeing a lot more of the hybrid model. They they want to keep a hybrid model because they still want to develop a culture and relationships and things like that. Mm-hmm. But if I only have to go to the office once a week, that appeals to a lot of different people, and it actually expands the group of people that I can hire. Right. Uh, because now now I have the ability to go outside of my city, township, or, or wherever I'm at and try to find the best talent instead of settling for who can get to the office in 30 minutes. Well, right? and don't you also, it expands the time of day that they can be working. I mean, we, we want to make it convenient for us when we schedule patients, but there mm-hmm. might be offices that want to schedule on a Saturday because their uh, doctors are in on a Saturday, uh, mm-hmm. or you know after what we would call hours. You know maybe uh, you know their uh, scheduling department that you know maybe those people are also working at at, at different times, uh, mm-hmm. or the doctor is the one that does it himself, uh, or the doctor looks at a schedule and wants to talk to the scheduler to see you know what's going on. Don't you think that's another uh, another possibility there? Yeah, that's that's part of that operational efficiencies that that physicians and and surgery centers are are looking for. You know, we we always struggled as a surgery center that we had to contain our hours mm-hmm. of scheduling uh, just for for financial purposes. And when the surgeon got called to the ER and and wanted to see if there was room at the surgery center to do a, an open reduction uh, of a fracture the next day there was nowhere to go. Right. So, you know, that's that's part of that operational efficiency too, where physicians are being asked to do more with less and, and they want the ability to do just exactly what you said, pull it up on their phone. Mm-hmm. What does my schedule look like at the surgery center? Is there a place I can put this? Let me put in just a few data points and that will, will send a message over to the administrator or the scheduler, whoever's covering that evening, that, that maybe this case can get at the surgery center and and I can get a more convenient location and a less expensive location for this patient to go instead of racking them in the hospital, putting them at risk for COVID and all of those different protocols, I'm going to send them home and then they can go to the surgery center tomorrow. Right. And and that is a a trend that we have been uh, seeing certainly is that the cases in many of our surgery centers are increasing, especially those surgery centers that uh, used to share cases mm-hmm. with the hospital. I mean, you're not finding huge increases in, in GI because most of them already moved over to the ASC. But orthopedics, I've seen a huge increase across the board uh, in the cases that are moving over. And yeah, we're, that's what we're seeing too is orthopedic spine and cardiology right. um, that are trying to get those those routine diagnostics 
out of the hospital. Now, interesting, as you mentioned cardiology, just about two hours ago, I was on the phone with uh, a group of doctors who, who want to bring cardiology to the ASC. They've never even talked about it before. As a matter of fact, I, uh, unfortunately, I don't know very much about it. I talk about it in the, uh, in the podcast that it's been added, but none of our clients up until now have done that. But what do you think uh, from a technology standpoint, our ability to be able to do additional cases, where, where do you think some of those growth are? I mean, obviously orthopedics, but do you think cardiology is going to be one of those areas? Is that something that you're seeing in, in your uh, in your daily life too? Yeah, we're seeing that. We're seeing quite a bit of cardiology um, moving to that space. Um, I, I think there's quite a few cases with the advancement of the technology for cardiac catheterization and other cardiac procedures the more technologically advanced they are, the less risk we have. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing the the risk quotient for those patients going down to where they can be treated. And right now, when they go to the hospital, they're in and out in the same day. Right. So now we want to give them all the other benefits of going to a surgery center with the less cost, the more convenience, and 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 all of those things. And so the lack of risk I of think, being in contact with a, a COVID nineteen patient. Yeah. <laughs> that's just the bonus yeah, right, right there. Yeah. Is is I don't have to sit in the waiting room that's that's commingled with uh, with all the other surgery patients. What do you think about the technological changes? You know, we've largely talked about the impact on the physicians and the surgery center, but how do you think this is going to impact the patient and what options out there? I mean, obviously, uh, your software provides some opportunities to communicate with the patient, but what other types of technological changes do you see that are, are, are patient-facing? So we're seeing, well, of course, you saw the explosion of telemedicine yeah. uh, with the pandemic. And, and so we're seeing a lot of routine care being pushed out to telemedicine. Mm -hmm. But even when it comes to telemedicine, we still have to document it. We still have to have a place to put it. Yeah. Um, so, so that's where we as technological providers are being more involved with that. And, and we're not going to be everything to everybody. Uh, we have to make sure that the software that is created not only works for the one-room eye center, but also works for the six-room cardiology and totals center. Yeah. Um, so we have to figure out ways to be interoperable. And that's, that's probably where we've seen a lot of that, uh, that movement here in the last couple of years is, you know, our expectation of a technology is you, you're not going to be able to do everything for me, but if you can't do everything, can you at least connect to the, the ones that do? Mm -hmm. you know, we're never going to replace cardiac cath software. Right. We're never going to, you know, do all the pressure measurements and do all the EKG uh, views and ablations and things like that. But we need to be able to be in a position to accept that data when it comes to us and have a place where all of that data can come together. I think that also can be said for GI too, because there's some great GI packages out there that do uh, great documentation. You ne don't necessarily want to replace any EMR system, you know, with, well, you want that system to interface with an EMR system will take care of all the other things like the pre-op and the post-op. What they, mm -hmm. what some of those GI systems do really best are the, uh, the intraoperative uh, documentation. And their physicians are usually one of the bigger challenges you have yeah. when you start introducing technology. So if they are already accepting that technology and you're not going to tear it out of their cold, dead hands, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you better be able to work with it. So one of the things that's near and dear to my heart, and every week I run into this, and I know you run into it also as you're out there marketing, is the whole issue of 
packages that that uh, surgery centers have purchased that are not ASC specific. I run into this every day. Just ran into it a couple days ago with an EMR system that just isn't working right and, of course, doesn't have some of the other advantages. Um, how do you think that has changed? You know, has there been more of an understanding post-pandemic of the importance of moving away from, let's say, packages that have been designed for the office as opposed to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a physician's office, as opposed to something that's been designed specifically to ASCs? And, and while you're talking about it, let's Let's kind of delineate why you need to have a package that's been designed for an ASC specifically. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we saw it a little bit pre-pandemic and, mm -hmm. and even three years ago, we saw more uh, uh, places trying to take their clinic system and smarten them up or yeah. take a hospital system and dumb them down. Uh, to, to fit in the, the parameters of the ASC. And uh, we saw it slowly converting, but, and then the, the pandemic pushed it even further, that all those resources that would have been available from a hospital system or from a clinic system to work on uh, creating more ASC-specific things got allocated other places. So now the clinic is is focused on telemedicine. So they've shifted all their resources from creating more ASC technology over to telemedicine technology. And and same thing on the hospital side is is how can we manage more ICUs and things like that instead of creating more ASC specific content. So that has boosted the need for the ASC content as well um, or the ASC specific software. Mm -hmm. And and we are still telling the same story we yeah. were five years ago is we have a very unique way of billing yeah. that is different than hospitals, different than clinics. And you need a system that understands that. We have state reporting. We are looking at things completely differently than any other division of healthcare. So you're always going to be trying to force that, that round peg in the square hole. Well, and you bring up a very interesting point. Of course, I live in New York, and, and a lot of our clients are in New York. New York's not alone, though. There are other states that have state reporting requirements. But uh, I have seen, and you and I have had some conversations in the last year about clients that have spent an enormous – I mean, we're not talking – yeah, we're talking six figures to yeah. fix the problem that they um, they they created for themselves when they did not select a system that was designed for an ASC that could handle the state reporting. And of course, they they encountered salespeople out there that said, "Oh, don't worry, we can handle that." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we 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 hear lots of stories along yeah. those same lines. That oh yeah, we're we're right on the cusp of releasing more ASC specific or, or having um, a, uh, a reporting module where you can create your own parameters. Yeah. Well, you know, now you're, you're dedicating your staff to do their job. Well, and that's a very good point. I've seen that interesting sales pitch being made that they say, uh, well, we don't have it yet, but you can get it. It's almost like you can get that for free. Uh, mm -hmm. Because we're, you know, we'll work with you to develop that module, and that's exactly right. You know, it's not really free because you're going to end up training them, and then you're going to have to put up with six, twelve months of development time. And by the way, we just had a situation. You and I, I think talked about it where that that completely failed. In other words, the the uh, the vendor came back at the end of it and said, you know, something we can't do it. And mm -hmm. here they were nine months into the process 
with no solution, having to completely switch their software around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their eyes are bigger than their stomach sometimes, I think, yeah. uh, where they think, oh, how hard can this be? It's a CPT code and a, and a fee schedule, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Um, so let's let's just talk about telemedicine for a sec a second mm -hmm. because it's not it's not something that's obviously um, uh, can be done in a surgery center. In other words, I'd love it if we could uh, you know do telemedicine. <laughs> we could do that brain surgery or uh, or, or a colonoscopy uh, you know from home, and you don't have to leave your uh, your living room to do it. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. No. So how do you see telemedicine? I have my own opinion. I'm curious to see what you're thinking. How, how can telemedicine work in an ASC? What types of, of things can we be using it for in an ASC? So we, we've always in the past had the opportunity to interact with our patients um, over the phone or over the internet. And, and sometimes that isn't quite as personable right. uh, as a, a telemedicine or, or a video visit can be. So we, we have opportunities there for our patient engagement. But we also wanna look at this as a way in which the physicians can interact with the patient's family. So if we have in this day and age when, you know, we have good old Delta variant sweeping through some of these states and, and we want to protect our physicians from exposure, um, maybe that's the best way to do it is, uh, you know, you, you sit in two separate rooms in the same building, but you're talking over video stream. Yeah. We actually had a QI meeting yesterday where most of us were, we had four people in the conference room, two people upstairs in the, the <laughs> surgery center. You know, one was going in and out between patients, obviously, and then three people that at home. And I'll tell you, the funny thing is I've been, do, I've been working with this organization for seven years now. I've been doing QI meetings for seven years. The first time we've done it this in this weird way where we, mm -hmm. uh, you know, had people in all different locations, including people that could have come down into the conference room, but chose not to, uh, not just because of COVID, but also because it was just more convenient for them, uh, to be up there. And, and let's face it, part of the problem is, and, and frankly, I felt the same way is I, I probably would have preferred to be in another room also. So I could take my mask off, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it's very difficult. I, I'm getting older. can't hear squat. Uh, so I'm starting to realize, like, like as I'm listening to you, I'm watching your mouth. You know, you forget how how much you uh, you you actually pick up for that. Um, so uh, I, I think that's definitely been you know one of the big changes out there. Um, I have a so how about let's talk about cybersecurity. You know, I, this really didn't happen because of COVID, of course. But I think it exacerbated. Way too many people are sitting at home doing nothing except getting themselves into trouble. Uh, at least that's Correct. my opinion. So what do you think is going on in, uh, there and, and how how should we be reacting to it? I, I think there are still a lot of people that are not taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. And and from our own perspective, um, as soon as COVID started to roll through internationally, uh, we definitely saw a major uptick in just the, the threat uh, and the number of people trying to invade systems, even yeah. our own. Uh, and, and, you know, you give people the time and uh, the opportunity, they're going to try to uh, get away with something. Right. And in a cloud-based environment, we can control it. Mm-hmm. When it's on a server in your closet, in your ASC, I can't control it. And 
that is that's what should be keeping administrators up at night. Um, we've walked into surgery centers and they're still running, you know, Windows ME <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> things like that, uh, where you know it's uh, yeah we don't need any support. Yeah, we know that they don't sell they don't support that anymore, but we haven't needed any support. Yeah. Well, it's it's more than that. That's also all those security patches, and as soon as uh, you had to to quarantine everybody, everybody had stay at home orders. You now created more pathways for them to get in there because your scheduler is remote, your yeah. coder is remote, your billing people are remote. So you've just opened up a whole new pathway for them to get in. So when everybody was working in the building and you only had a few extraneous uh, uh, visitors from the outside coming in, it was a much lower risk. But now that everybody's home and you had to create that remote desktop for 15 people over three people now, you've just given 15 more lanes of traffic for them to drive through. So that's, that's what that what should keep them up at night. I'm yeah. not sure, you know, that, that they have the visibility into that. Um, but uh, um, our security director has done a, a lot of interviews and articles and, and uh, things like that to try to get people to realize the, the sheer magnitude of threats that are going on now and, well, and using those to get into those systems. Yeah, and they're getting sneakier and sneakier. I mean, even I, who have a pretty heavy background in, in detecting these things, have uh, you know found a couple. I mean, I've never been caught yet. <laughs> Knock mm -hmm. on wood. I probably shouldn't say that. Now it's going to put somebody, uh, you know, challenge them. <laughs> but uh, but I'm seeing these things where you kind of just have to sit back and say, hey. Wait a minute. Yeah, this isn't right. And a lot of it comes through email. I, now, that brings up another interesting thing. So as I'm sitting here right now, I, I spent uh, three hours this morning reducing the number of outstanding emails from over 200, and I got it down to 30. Now, of course, in the time since I've been with you, I am sure it's back up to 200. Can we talk a little bit about how how email is changing, how that bec is becoming less, I, I believe, of of the standard for communication that it had been in the past, and what is replacing it, uh, mm -hmm. especially with the technological tools that we have available to us in the ASC. So we're we're and we're in the the process of that as well. I I don't think we're ever going to get be able to get rid of email. It's Correct. you know it's it's kind of like getting rid of landlines. Yeah. Uh, we still haven't gotten rid of landlines at, at this point. So we're always going to have to service that part of the communication puzzle. Um, but we are are and you'll see a lot of retail industry shifting this way as well. We're shifting into text. Yeah. Um, and, and so we are seeing more ways to securely send texts and less opportunity for influence through text message than we are through the email because mm -hmm. everyone's wary of email yeah. now. And so often um, an email that comes from somewhere you're not expecting gets pushed off into a location that you may not be expecting it to be. Yeah. So we're shifting more towards that angle and we're also shifting more towards electronic communication that does not require human intervention. Mm -hmm. 
So the ability to send information, not taking a spreadsheet and attaching it to an email, but sending those individual data points electronically through a, a secure connection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we used to, uh, when I was running my surgery center, I would run my reports and I would send those via email to our accountants so they could do our end of month reporting. And, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a lot more secure and certainly a lot easier to put those in a format that just sends them electronically instead of attaching them to a, a public source like email. Right. And uh, for example, that's what we're doing within our company now is that we have mm-hmm. extranets with all of our clients where we're not sent. Well, and, and obviously it's all encrypted now. You know, everything is HIPAA secured, which means that as long as it's kept within those bounds, we are, uh, you know, much, uh, there's a lot more security. And of course, being cloud based, uh, it does back it up. But so we've reduced the amount of email that is occurring back and forth when we're sharing data, increased the security of that data by not subjecting it to, you know, public email, even with encryption. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I think that's greatly enhanced things. But of course, the problem that I'm running into, and that's the next thing I want to address, uh, is the challenges that we have with getting our users technologically savvy. I find myself spending a lot of time explaining things that I barely understand myself because uh, mm-hmm. I'm old. And, uh, you know, and let's face it, you know, it, it's harder It's harder for us as we get to this age to, you know, really grasp things as quickly. At least I'm, maybe I'm speaking for myself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm finding that challenge now, and, and it's really almost getting to the point where even within our own company, I'm going to have to hire somebody whose full-time job is to educating the users, not only our own employees, but our clients, as to how to use the, tech, the wonderful technological tools that we have. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and mm-hmm. how you're dealing with that challenge? So we, we have some of those same challenges because uh, people want to choose convenience over security. Yeah. Okay. And that's basically what it comes down to is, sure, I'd, I'd love to fill out this form that you sent me um, uh, on my phone. I'm just going to grab Siri and do that. What they don't realize is Siri is not HIPAA compliant and everything you say and it produces now belongs to Apple. Yeah. You know, so it it's getting them to realize that not all the time can we choose convenience over security. Um, yes, we, we it is more involved and, and uh, less convenient to, to do it the secure way. But uh, I don't think they realize where some of that stuff goes. Um, you know, using dictation when you're using Microsoft Word, which is fantastic. I use it all the time. Yeah. But if you're talking about patient names and conditions and and medications and things like that you just crossed a line i don't think you may have realized you just crossed yeah so we try to educate them to use the tools as they were designed and continue to educate them as we go that hey we know this is a tool that's available to you but it's not hipaa compliant or it's not uh, as secure as you think it is so, Darren, why don't we talk about, again, how we might be able to uh, get uh, 
those individuals. It's not. It is not just the people that are older too. I, I've been picking on older people because I can do that since I am old. Uh, but it, you know, there. It, you know, as you start to use new tools, you you do run into the challenge of trying to, you know, trying to educate people how to use them. Uh, do you have any suggestions? I, I'm sure there are many people out there that are just looking for some advice on how do we educate it. You know, are there people that we can hire? Are there websites you can go to? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just learning how to use mm-hmm. a basic tool, even Excel, which we all have to use. Even if we're using, you know, an SIS software, you're going to have to have an Excel spreadsheet probably to pull together data that we're eventually going to put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's your advice, if you have any on that? Sure, sure. So so what we try to do is, is within the software you're using, um, try to make sure that they have some physical barriers to that as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we can engineer out that risk. Mm-hmm. So we can block you from using Siri to do dictation if you're in our software. And we can block you from from cutting and pasting from an outside source and, and things like that. So uh, use the physical barriers that your software has available to you, mm-hmm. um, but also... Um, I, I don't know if any surgery centers are doing this, if it's just software companies, but I have to go through training every month yeah. on how to prevent, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, bad actors from getting into our files. And so I, you know, my job depends on me taking these classes and passing these tests yeah. uh, uh, on cybersecurity and password security and, and, and physical environment security and all those things. So keeping it on top of mind, because sometimes I think people just forget about it uh, and, yeah. and they get a little lapse where, you know, God, this would just be so much faster if I could just use this app yeah. that I found. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the key is education. And as an education company, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the podcast, of course, probably is going to have to, you know, kind of suck it up and uh, come up with some solutions ourselves to be able to, uh, you know, get this out to the world, because I think it's long past time uh, to start educating people. I, I don't know a great solution, because everything we've tried so far has has fallen short of our goal of trying to be able to make everybody use it. One one thing that we have found, especially working with software packaging, you know, we're, we're sometimes much more familiar with using uh, you know, for example, SIS or any of the other packages out there than than our clients are, which is kind of disappointing to me because it, you know, I keep I keep saying, well, you know, d- didn't your software vendor give you that education? And I know darn well they did, but we know what happens is you get so overwhelmed with that training program, you pull in twenty five percent of what you were taught about, and you don't bother to go back and take that additional training, which you know you need to have in order to follow up on it. But but I think uh, we really have got to start training people as much on using the technology as we are on training them to be good healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're trying to engineer into everything we do. And, and the other technology t- uh, software and technology companies we work with are doing that as well. Um, and, you know, a tool we use is intra software help, you know, so, so, in the traditional scheme, if I didn't know how to do something, I had to go out and print a a package of instructions together and it had screenshots and things like that. Where we're trying to engineer out that variability is to make sure that we have training modules built within the program. So if I hire a new person, I don't have to stand over them and watch them go through this process 10 times. There is a 
software modality that will show them what boxes need to be filled in with what information. So we're trying to engineer out some of that, uh, what we called it legacy training, where you never got official training. You just learned it from the person who was using it before. And that brings forth good things, but it also brings forth bad things. So if you never get trained on how the program was designed to run, you may not be using it as it was designed or as the in the most efficient manner. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that you know. Then you're just uh, and you're also uh, encouraging bad habits that might have been accumulated, you know, from uh, that in, the prior individual with the new and new people. And I see that a lot. And and sometimes they're just too, shall we say, cheap <laughs> to go out <laughs> and and pay the extra money for the up to date training. Whereas that training, that that small amount of money that you would pay for that would uh, pay huge dividends. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day that's saying, you know, I, I got to come up with this system for uh, tracking, you know, my uh, credential providers. And I've worked with your system and its predecessors for 30 years. And I believe that first system that I worked with had built-in credentialing oversight. And they had mm-hmm. no clue, no clue that that was built into the software package. Um, and again, every major package out there that I know of that are designed for an ASC has that, that as a function. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things we encourage everyone to do as well is if you're not in contact, we put out enormous amounts of educational material and right. have we have webinars and we have, you know, videos that we send out and, and all those things. And if you aren't getting two or three emails a week from your software provider offering you opportunities to learn, then it's it's kind of on you then. Yeah. You're not taking advantage of, of what they're making available. And, and same thing goes on your side of the business as well, is if you're not educating yourself onto the new, uh, the new regulations and the new requirements, then it's if you are getting cited for those requirements, it's kind of on you because yeah. there's all kinds of people out there willing and able to help you. That's right. That's exactly right. And we're we're a mature industry now. We have very uh, you know a lot of resources available to us that we never had before. When I when I started th- over 30 years ago, I was one of the only administrators in the state of New York. I had nobody that I knew how to uh, uh, you know call. And of course, no, there's no such thing as the internet. Well, there might have been the internet at that point, but none of us knew how to use it. Or no, where not to, get to it. that capacity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, right. it's not like you could go out there and, and Google what's a fee schedule. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I do want to go back to something we talked a little bit about before, but I think it's important is that the the difference between you know like client server and cloud based, or shall we say, mm-hmm. in house servers and cloud based. Uh, you touched upon it by talking about how important it is for cybersecurity, but there really is another element to it: is you know cost and maintenance and you know physical security as opposed to you know just that cybersecurity side of it too. Do you want to talk a little bit about the advantages? I do suspect that many people are just might not even know what they have in house. I, I find that a lot when I walk in. I say, "Do you have your own server here?" And they'll say, "I I, I don't know. I have this." You know, they'll they'll point to a room and they'll think that all the stuff in there is. Uh, is a server, and it might not be. For example, it might be just the mm-hmm. communication system. Talk a little bit about the uh, about how that industry is changing uh, with that. Which, by the way, given that I've been around for a long time, seems like a circle, doesn't it? Because in the beginning it? years of uh, of computers, that's how we did it, and then we went to individuals, and now we're back to, to shall we say, the cloud. But go ahead and talk about that a little bit. 
Well, and and that's that's one of the key things that that we when we get in front of of ASCs, that's one of the questions we ask them is is how are you doing your backups? Because if there's going to be a ransomware attack, if your server's going to go down, if if any of those those never happen things on on your in house uh, server happens. Um, do you have a backup? And if they say yes, then we say, when's the last time you restored a backup? And the standard answer is, well, I don't know. I've been here 15 years. I've never had to. Yeah. You know, and, and that's usually the the indicator we get, and that little light bulb will go off on the you know on the top of their head that says, holy cow, I don't. I don't think I've done that for four or five years, restoring a backup. And, yeah. and we actually sat there and walked the uh, surgery center through restoring a backup, and it didn't work. Yeah. They found out that the hard drive that they were taking home in their purse every night was corrupted. Yeah. So, so um, th- that is usually how we can put it on a personal level mm-hmm. is, are you doing backups? Have you ever tried to restore a backup? And when's the last time you did that to make sure that, that A, you knew how to do it and B, it was successful? So being in a cloud environment, we are constantly backing up. So not only are you writing on a primary stack of servers that are sitting in Texas, it's also concurrently writing on another stack of servers uh, in that same data center on separate ends of that data center. But Mm -hmm. not only that, then we have a disaster recovery site that it's writing to as well. So Mm -hmm. we are providing you three different backup or, or, or use options um, that we have available to you. And we test that on a daily basis to make sure that we can restore a backup that our, our backup is clean. So that should, should give you peace of mind that, that you're not going to lose everything that you have, or you're not going to be Googling what Bitcoin is so you can pay the ransom. <laughs> well, I, and and to that point, like we we have that same situation. We use a, a cloud based provider that actually backs up to all over the world uh, in mm-hmm. order to provide that. You know, so we're pretty secure with it. But even with that, we mm-hmm. still back up to. Uh, actually, I'm sitting in the studio here that backs up to a little computer over in the corner there. Well, it's a little computer, but it's got a really big hard drive that as soon as the backup is done, it's taken offline, and we do test that every week to make sure that it's, that everything is there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you're not doing that, you you absolutely should try it once. I, mm-hmm. I uh, was about 20 years ago, I, I had a hard disk failure in a uh, surgery center, uh, one, a surgery center that I was running at the time before I started this company. And this is one of those scenarios where the software vendor or the hardware vendor promised us that this could never happen. It says that's the type of thing that will only happen once every thousand times. And, of course, it happened to us. And it took us two weeks to restore it. Um, and it, it was not pretty and it was very expensive to do that. So, uh, I, we, I, hopefully that's one message everybody will get out of this is start taking that seriously, work with your hardware vendor as well as your software vendor to make sure that you're well protected. And, and not even on the, the, the scary side of things, yeah. but on the operational efficiency side of things, when I, Put when I have a new update that I have to uh, security patch or or a new feature or functionality, I have to go touch not only the server but every single computer that is connected to that server. Yeah. Uh, in a cloud environment, we 
push out an update and everybody's on the same version at once. Right. And, you know, the anesthesia workroom was locked and I couldn't get in there to update their computer. And now when they log in in the morning, it's going to give them the database doesn't match the software uh, version and all of that goes away. So just that operational efficiency of I don't have to touch every computer and I don't have to go do the Windows 10 update on every single computer and I don't have to do my, my feature and function functionality updates, all of that is automatic. So, you know, we usually try to compare it to, you know, when you get that notification every week that Facebook wants to update, we're going to do the same thing. That's right. So we're going to plug those little holes that that happen in software. There's bugs out there. Uh, it's it, You try to prevent every single bug, but, it, you know, those things happen. Uh, when you're talking about millions of lines of code and a comma, in the wrong place in a million lines of code can result in a bug. We need to be able to get in there and fix it quickly. And in a cloud environment, I can fix it within about 40 seconds for everyone who's on that environment. When you're on a server environment, guess what? You got to touch every single computer. Well, and and of course, you're talking specifically about the vertical package, the package that runs your surgery center and the registration, billing, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, medical records, et cetera. Uh, But the same could be said for all of those files that we have to store. You know, traditionally, Mm -hmm. you would store it on an individual computer or on a server out there that everybody can see. But today, you know, go cloud-based. Now, of course, we don't have a a server, per se, like that in our company or at the podcast, for that matter. Uh, Everything is cloud-based, which which is, as you said, constantly updated. The other nice thing about these cloud-based solutions is that if somebody were to uh, encrypt our data on one of the machines, inevitably another machine is not going to be encrypted. And and we Mm -hmm. also have the ability to go back in time to prior to whenever somebody encrypted it. So it, I'm not going to say it's totally impossible that uh, we would have a problem, but it would not be necessarily with us. It would probably be with our, our cloud-based provider, which means, of course, you need to be very careful about who you use you know, when you mm-hmm. choose those solutions. But don't think about it not only when you're looking at your the software that runs your billing, registration, um, EMR, but also all those other things that we inevitably have to have a computer for. Right, right. And making sure that if it is uh, protected health information that the company you're using understands what you're storing right? and that those things do need to have an extra layer of protection on and them. And that you have a business associate agreement with them. Correct. So in the uh, 2022 proposal from CMS for the new payment mechanism and the Medicare quality reporting mechanism, one of the requirements is that uh, OAS CAPS, which is a uh, a way of uh, surveying our patients, is going to be implemented. Uh, It's effective in 2023. It's voluntary in 2022. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how that's going to be integrated into your system or predict how it's going to be integrated into, you know, some of these Mm -hmm. vertical packages? Because, uh, I mean, up until now, a lot of us, a lot of centers are are doing uh, their patient satisfaction surveys offline, like on a, on a piece of paper. But as difficult as I think this transition is going to be, I do think that there are some efficiencies that we can get from it, albeit at a cost, because of course, it's not going to mm-hmm. be free to do it. But unfortunately, we in this scenario, we have no choice. You know, Medicare is going to require it. Do you have any observations on that? Yep, we've been waiting for that. So yeah. that's so uh, I. <laughs> uh, yeah, We're, we've been because that process is is not easy or inexpensive to create the the methodology to get those out there, uh, get the surveys out there, retrieve them, put them in the statistical analysis. 
And all of that has to take place away from your clinical record. Yeah. So it's not as easy as, oh, I'll just create a new form in my clinical record that goes out to the patient and then it comes back into the clinical record and it's not supposed to be there. So, so what our intention was is, is, um, if these things do get passed, uh, that, that caps will be, will be required, we will integrate it, that into our software. And our, our proposed version is it will sit outside of, of your business operations and it will sit outside of your clinical operations it's, itself. It'll be siloed in its own QA section of, okay. of the software. Um, so that's where all of that information will feed to. And the efficiencies that we see that we can provide is all that patient information doesn't need to go anywhere because it's all using the same database to get out of the system and back into the system. But also we have very mature analytics programs where all of this information can get pumped in. So instead of looking at your statistical analysis in a graphical format from your AR or from room utilization, you're looking at uh, the, the results of the patient satisfaction surveys. Uh, And then having the also the internal wiring to be able to push that information out to wherever it's going to land for CMS. Yeah. Uh, I, I know there's been talk about that changing too, that uh, it's a pretty antiquated system that they're using on the hospital side. So yeah. um, they've talked about updating that. So um, we talk about API connections, kind of the new version of HL7 and being able to just push that data directly into a bucket uh, uh, for CMS use would be much more efficient than than the way they're proposing to do it now. Well, and this is, uh, as we've said to our listeners on the podcast, this is going to have a huge impact because uh, you're you're not exempt from this if you're a small center. So, and, and mm-hmm. there's just a base level of cost that's associated with it. Uh, if it's, as you said, if it's built into your um, software package that you use for billing and registration and uh, EMR, there's a huge advantage and and uh, uh, that integration will save a great deal of time, maybe money, uh, but, mm, but time, time and, and, money. and mm-hmm. of course, uh, what I would be excited about, it, what you've just described is the ability to pull that data and correlate it with other information that you have already existing in that database, probably to create some good QI studies that would be relevant. Um, yes. and, and of course, I'm I'm skeptical that the OAS caps is going to give us a lot of great data, uh, given the number of questions and the fact that we're not sure that patients are going to be very very much interested in filling these things out or or uh, completing these conversations unless they're really angry with the surgery center. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we can gather information and if we can correlate it using your analytics there uh, into a way in our quality improvement meetings to be able to identify some changes, I think that could be a very big benefit here. Right. Yeah, yeah. looking help. at those patients and, and being able to correlate, okay, you know, this group of patients was not very happy with, with uh, one aspect of their care. Yeah. When you start correlating that to the EHR, did they spend an enormous amount of time in recovery? Did they have yeah. a particularly high acuity procedure? Um, 
did we screw up something on the billing side that made them angry? And, and no matter how good we were, they yeah. got a $2,000 bill in the mail when they were expecting a $200 bill and they turned on us. Yeah. So having the ability to correlate all three of those silos, the, the clinical silo, the financial silo, and the quality silo together yeah. uh, is exciting from a uh, an old administrator's perspective <laughs> and a statistician here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm anxious to get that debt. I'm just, uh, the, but, but as we all know that the, uh, the information that we, uh, w- we work with is only as good as that input that we got in the first place. So if all we got were, uh, we surveyed a hundred patients and 99 of them were angry with us, it's probably not going to, uh, be as valuable as, uh, or, or might give some false impressions about the care that's being rendered. And, and I know that's what's exactly. been happening in the hospital caps version out there is that it, it you know, really very difficult to, to get useful information out of it. Oh, and their return rates have been just horrible too. Yeah. Uh, it's just not, I think people are over surveyed. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I get a survey every time I take my dog to the groomer. Yeah. Is yeah. his haircut? Great. I, I don't need a survey. <laughs> well, I drive 60,000 miles a year in my car, so the car's in for the repair shop constantly. Just, you know, not for breaking down, but, you know, tire changes, oil changes, uh, you mm-hmm. know, brakes and things like that. And, yeah I, yeah, I used to fill them out, but, you know, now that I get them weekly, it's just not worth it to me. Darren, my last question is going to be, you know, kind of predicting the future. Is there anything that I've missed that you want to talk about that you want me to introduce? I don't believe so. And we're trying to follow the same path that people saw in the the acute care side. In the acute care side, it used to be a best of breed model where you just go find the best OR system and the best inventory system and, and they'll figure out how to make them talk together. Yeah. And when we look at the future, you know, we've seen Cerner and Epic on the acute care side and and Meditech, those that do everything and put it all in one software package. That's, I think, where the focus is going to be both from the vendor side and from the the client side. Um, So I I think we're really going to see movement, especially in the next year of consolidation of, of uh, you know, we want you to come to, to the CIS website and we want you to be able to do everything from there. I don't want to make you go out to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Iowa, uh, yeah. Iowa's website. And I, I don't want to make you go out to Waystar's website to do denial management. And, and I think uh, uh, looking forward, that's part of what we're going to see is the consolidation of, of, of from best of breed to single vendor. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think, and and not only in our industry, of course, but across the board, as people are trying Mm -hmm. to find, you know, one, uh, you know, one solution that kind of covers everything. I I mean, actually, with ambulatory healthcare strategies, that's what we're finding is our clients are demanding so many more, or not so much demanding, but they're saying, "Hey, I got this other need here," and you know, we're stepping in and saying, "Okay, guess that's something we're going to be doing now." You know, we Mm -hmm. we we've we've shied away from uh, you know credentialing for a long time, and now you know here we are. We're not a CVO, but we're doing an awful lot of the work for many of our clients just to, to help credential people. And, you know, it's a strain on our resources, but, you know, people are willing to pay for that advantage if they don't have to, you know, hire additional clerical people in order to cover that in their, their organization. I think that – and that's the point there is that what we're trying to do is find some operational efficiency where we – 
people haven't figured this out already, you know, the, the, the labor market is not great right now. Uh, there's not a lot of people out there to do the work and, uh, and we got to keep the ones that, uh, that we have very happy so they don't leave, which means that they need to have those resources. They need to continue that work, recognizing that those resources probably aren't going to be in the, in the form of a lot more, uh, more staff people. I, I think we're going to, uh, I, I actually see the ASCs benefiting from this because I think there's going to be a lot of healthcare workers getting out of acute care and looking for yeah. for a different environment. And, and a lot of times ASCs can provide that. So hopefully that means great things for, for ASC staffing. You know, this has been a great conversation, Darren, because it's, you know, I think that we've had so many um, conversations lately about how dire the situation is. And I, you know, you put an interesting spin on it, you know, and of course we all fall into that because it's been a, it's been a tough year and a half. Um, but it, it's been great to have a conversation about those positive things that have come out of this. Um, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, John. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. The California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 annual meeting is September 8th through the 10th, 2021 at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa in Huntington Beach, California. For more information, go to casurgery.org. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is on September 22nd, 2021 at Sheraton Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. The Ohio ASC Association's conference will be at the Hilton Columbus Polaris on September 27th and 28th, and they'll host uh, on those days a two-day event featuring an exhibit hall and two full days of education, and I have the privilege of being the keynote speaker. The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers Live and In-Person Roaring Twenties Conference will be held in at the Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Conference Center in Terrytown, New York on September 29th and 30th. For more information, visit nysaasc.org. And we have uh, a very large presence there, so we'll be doing we're re- reporting a, a um, podcast from there. And I think we have seven of our employees are coming out, so make sure if you're uh, visiting uh, to visit our booth. We're also going to have, I forgot to mention this under Ohio, but we'll have a booth in Ohio mm-hmm. too. The Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show will be November 4th and 5th, 2021 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. I just love that word, Tulalip. <laughs> I just yes. have to visit sometime. <laughs> so Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is November 8th, 2021 at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And as we mentioned earlier, the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp, which was extremely popular in May, the November cohort will be presented by the ASC Podcast with John Gailey on November 16th through the 19th, presented, of course, virtually. For more information, visit ASCPodcast.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Amy Durbano, 
Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.